You're listening to Like Flint Radio, part of the Revelations Radio Network. Alrighty, well, welcome to another episode of Like Flint Radio. I'm your host, GK, and uh, on the line with me in South Africa is my co-host, Andy Tade. Good evening, Andy. Hello, very good to be with you again. <laughs> again, yes, again. Uh, we again because we're, we're recording a couple of shows back to back here. But listen, um, on this episode we have a very special guest, and I'm going to bring him on directly from Dallas, Texas. We have Daryl Bock, and um, we'll bring Daryl on, and we'll ask him to tell our audience a bit about himself. So, welcome to the show, Daryl. Uh, my pleasure to be with you, and you guys are spanning the globe today. That's right. <laughs> yes, yes, we are. And uh, I always say I love doing this. I love uh, the technology where, you know, we can be in three major different time zones and um, come around and share things together and get a good message out. So I always enjoy that. Um, Daryl, first of all, thanks for your time and thanks for saying yes to be on the show. The main thing that we wanted to talk to you about is uh, a book that you're a co-author on called Truth Matters, Confident Faith in a Confusing World. But before we get to that, would you be able to just give our listeners a brief bio on yourself, a bit of a background on who you are and um, what you do? Sure. I am a senior research professor of New Testament studies at Dallas Theological Seminary and also executive director for cultural engagement at the Hendricks Center, which is also located at the seminary. Uh, I've been teaching at Dallas coming up on my uh, completing my 32nd year and uh, did my doctoral work in the University of Aberdeen in Scotland and did postdoctoral work four times, four separate single years at the University of Tübingen in Germany. Um, uh, former president of the Evangelical Theological Society in the United States, and uh, and I've written uh, somewhere over thirty books. I actually don't know the actual count. So um, so that tells you a little bit about who I am. I am uh, uh, wonderfully happily married to mm-hmm. Sally, uh, almost thirty nine years, and we have three children and three grandchildren. Wow. Well, that's a blessing. Thank you very much for that. Um, I do have another of your books. I've got a couple of them here and intend to get more in the future. But um, uh, as I said, we want to focus on this one, Truth Matters. Um, I find I found um, reading this book, both Andy and I have the book and we've both read it. Mm-hmm. Um, I just say straight off, we've got a lot out of it ourselves, but I know that there would be a, a target audience for this book. Who would you say the audience is, Daryl, mainly? Well, the main audience are are what in the United States would be juniors and seniors in high school, which mm-hmm. is the the last two years before you go to college. Right. It would also be their parents, in the hopes that they would have be able to discuss the contents of the book. We've written the book purposely to be accessible to uh, to teenagers. And then uh, youth pastors and pastors who teach and preach in churches, because part of our belief is is that churches have not done a very good job of preparing uh, young people for what they will face when they graduate from high school, go to university, 
and meet a variety of arguments that are skeptical either about the Bible or the Christian faith or God. And so we took um, books written by probably one of the most famous skeptics in the United States, Bart Ehrman, someone who teaches at the university, and uh, did a chapter on each one of the book topics that he addresses, both presenting the kind of thing that he's saying and the response to it. Uh, And we really do believe that when churches shield their young people from these discussions and these arguments on the good motive, really, of in some ways protecting them, they've actually undercut their ability long term to keep the child in the church because these arguments are everywhere and they will meet them when they go to university. So they need to know how to face them. Yeah, that's a good overview because I was going to say, um, uh, I, I look at here and towards the end, end of the book, um, it says that uh, Truth Matters is an introduction to the topic of how skeptics approach scripture. It discusses key ideas and principles to help readers understand and respond to these objections. And if um, you've given us a handy list of uh, uh, questions uh, that the book addresses, and I'm not sure we'll be able to cover all of these, but I'll read some of them out just so our listeners know um, what's in the book and therefore might encourage them to get it for themselves or for their um, for their young people. But um, uh, questions like, was Christianity just made up? Is the Bible full of irresolvable irresol- contradictions? Is God incapable of keeping us from suffering? What gives the Bible any authority or credibility? How can we know what it says if we don't have any originals? Now, these are there's more than that, but these are all very important questions that many of us will um, be asked, but, but particularly young people when they go out into the world. And, Andy, I think you've also got a quote from the book. Is it um, from a, a Tolkien quote, Andy? Yeah, yeah. Right at the very beginning of the book, actually, there's a quote which I just love from Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. And it just says, it's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. And really, that is that is the premise for what you're covering in the book, uh, Daryl, because at the end of the day, we need to be building our house on solid rock um, and not that uh, shifting sand that when the storms come or when these these really difficult questions are thrown at us, what are we going to be able to say? How can we give an account for what we believe in our faith? Yes, exactly right. And our, our goal was to really prepare people for the array of questions that they get because the issues really come at several levels. I, I, I like to say, and this is probably more true in the United States than it is in other parts of the world, but I like to say that we've gone from a place where the Bible is the answer, an answer, to a place where the Bible is the question. And what that means is, is that should I even open my Bible? Should I even look at it? Is it worth the time and the trouble uh, to take a look at what the Bible has to say? And of course, if you never open the Bible, you never get to see what's in it, what it has to say, the way in which it looks at life. Uh, And so uh, it it prevents people from thinking through um, the impact of what Uh, engaging with God is all about. So it's a really, really key question to get people beyond the point of of thinking through, well, the Bible is kind of just this waste of time, to getting them to realize that there's a lot in Scripture that really does help us look at life in a positive way. 
Yeah, that's that's correct. Um, I was going to say to you that, um, or more of a question, but, um, you know, unbelief and even scepticism has been around, you know, um, right from the beginning. Um, you know, when it comes to God, Jesus and, and the scriptures, um, what's happening today? What's happened to us? Why why is it so strong today, in your opinion, um, Daryl? Well, I think there are a lot of things going on. Um, one is that we've got, you know, just much more access to uh, to information. I mean, the whole global uh, revolution has uh, information revolution, the access to the net, et cetera, means that there are lots of different means to get access to information. And so whereas before, you know, there might be one or two voices and they might or might not show up in the media, that kind of thing. Now it's all open-ended. You can go wherever you want. You know, you click and you're off in another place. And so there's that dimension of the equation. The second dimension is is that in the last 150 years, at least in most Western institutions uh, of higher learning, there's been a significant move culturally away from Judeo-Christian roots mm-hmm. uh, for a variety of reasons. And, and so most of the people teaching the institutions are not at all oriented towards a, a Christian point of view. And that impacts uh, what students are exposed to as they hit various disciplines. The influence of secularization where we look at things and, and detach ourselves from thinking about God in the midst of doing that uh, adds to this as well. So there are lots of factors that go. I, I tell my students that um, you turn on the television and you watch the History Channel or Discovery Channel or National Geographic Channel or you watch some of the specials that a, that a news channel put on of one sort or another, uh, particularly around Christmas and Easter, and you will see the influence of these kinds of questions coming up. And it's very much in the public square. It's not a question of just, you know, kind of your rabid skeptic uh, being there. It's a question that a lot of people are asking. And frankly, some of them are quite honest questions because Mm. many people have not grown up in the church. They've not been exposed to what the Bible has to say, what they've heard about the Bible is what they're hearing in the public square Mm. with these kinds of questions. So it would only be natural that as a kind of sponge on these topics, this would be where they would be coming from and be the questions that they'd have. So I tell people not to be hostile about the kinds of questions that come up because these kinds of questions are not uh, uh, unusual or unexpected. Sorry yeah, for the phone going off in the background. It's a that's lot fine. The, but we live here. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. So I also understand you're actually flying out to Australia tomorrow, aren't you? Yeah, I leave. we leave Monday for... Uh, which is in a couple of days for Ireland, and we'll be there for a week. And then from okay. Ireland, we come on uh, to Australia, and we're there in Australia and New Zealand for about six weeks before we come home. It's uh, We love uh, Australia and New Zealand, uh, absolutely enjoy uh, every time we travel there. Yeah, that's why um, when I first contacted you and you said said you were coming over here, I was I was hoping if you were coming to Queensland that we may have been able to meet or something. But um, if you ever come up to Queensland, please let me know. But um, <laughs> um, uh, have you been to Queensland, Daryl? Yes, I have. Uh, uh, the first trip I made to Australia, we spent some time in Queensland, and mm. uh, and we. But the bulk of our time is spent has been spent in. Uh, Sydney, Melbourne, and Adelaide. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. And this trip will be primarily Sydney and Melbourne for right. this particular go around. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, 
what I was going to say to you, leading on from what we were talking about earlier, um, in in your in your book that we're discussing here, um, we have this question of faith, and you know, is it at odds with reason? Because you talk a lot about you know this idea of reason, and we can have have a reasoned faith or have a reasoned idea that you know, what we read in the Bible is true, that the Bible can be trusted. Like, we can't know 100% for sure. None of us can say this is 100% what life is all about and all the rest of it. But as believers, we can have this reasoned faith. So I guess I've really answered my own question, but we do not have to jettison reason when it comes to ideas of faith in God and the Scriptures, do we? I mean, No, not at all. Mm. And, of course, the key thing here is just the whole worldview orientation that you have, the idea yeah. of considering whether or not uh, there is such a thing as a creator, that the creation is, is structured with such intricacy that the idea that it came about just kind of because it came about almost takes as much faith uh, if not more, than the idea that there's some type of design behind it. That's that's the starting point. And then the second point that we make that we really do try and highlight through the book is this idea of you're never going to get 100% certainty. You're never going to get to a situation where the questioning, the skepticism, etc., is completely put uh, out to sea simply because when you're dealing with ancient history, which is what you're dealing with in the Bible, you are looking at events from a distance. Uh, the corroboration that many people want to have for these kinds of events, the idea that there are other sources that testify to them, is oftentimes hard to come by because our understanding and access to that ancient history is really selective based upon what has been preserved. And obviously not everything's been preserved, and we haven't discovered everything that was back at that time. And so we're dealing with partial findings in trying to corroborate what the Scripture talks about. And so in that kind of a light, you're never going to entirely remove uh, the need for recognizing that you can't nail everything down 100%. On the other hand, you can establish, I think, that the Bible has a realistic view of the world and has... uh, given us events that we can get our hands around, and that what it presents is is truthful and has uh, veracity attached to it. And particularly in the New Testament, where we have much more ancient evidence than we do for some of the things in the Old Testament, we can be very confident about Jesus' existence, the impact of his message, those kinds of things. Uh, in fact, you can't even explain the emergence of the Christian movement without uh, without a historical Jesus. So there's a lot of good reason for being open to what it is that the Bible has to say, and that's what we're trying to get people to see. Yes, that's right. Um, Andy, you were talking earlier before Daryl came on about this idea uh, about contradictions and diversity. Did you want to talk about that? Yeah, because within the book, um, we get to this point where all these kind of questions that get thrown around somehow proves that there must be this huge contradiction. And so therefore, that's where the question lies. But you said about to try and show that diversity does not necessarily mean that it has to be a contradiction. Yeah, I do think this is one of the most important aspects of what we discuss in the book, because I think a lot of people have a formula that says that difference equals contradiction, and it's not at all the case. 
Um, what, in fact, you're getting in Scripture are topics being looked at from a variety of angles. And really, it, it operates at a whole series of different levels, and this is what gets tricky for people. For example, you can have it at the level of just simple doctrine, where uh, in Romans, Paul can say, you know, salvation is by faith alone. Uh, but when you read James, uh, James will say, you see that salvation is not by faith alone, but involves works. Well, what's going on there? I mean, a lot of people, including Bible scholars, have said those two views are absolutely in contradiction with one another. There is no way to put that together. But if you sit back and you ask yourself, when is Paul asking the question where he talks about faith alone? He's asking the question at the point at which we enter into faith, when we're first trusting. When is James asking the question about the relationship between faith and works? He's looking back at how someone has responded in light of that faith. And actually, Part of the point that James is trying to make, which is also a point that Paul makes, is is that when faith is real and you really trust God and you draw on the resources that he's given you, there will be a product. In other words, faith works. Hmm. And so um, when you put that all together, you recognize that the angle that you're looking at things from impacts what you say about it. That's just a doctrinal example. Now, there are all kinds of other examples. There are literary examples where, for example, in the case where the centurion's um, slave or son is healed, um, in one account we get a direct conversation between Jesus and the centurion. This takes place in Matthew. But in Luke, it's done through Jewish emissaries. And so you sit there and say, well, did he meet with Jesus face-to-face or not? Well, once you recognize that the custom in the ancient world is is that when you send a representative, they're viewed as speaking on your behalf, mm-hmm. much like a press secretary would for a political uh, leader, then you realize that what Matthew has done, and you can show where Matthew does this in lots of places, he's literally simplified the event. And again, we don't have a contradiction. We just have different level of detail that we're getting access to between the way the two accounts are presented. So these are the kinds of things that we see. Another example, a third one, and I'm sorry to go long, but there's a variety here that we're dealing with, mm-hmm. um, is the example that Bart Ehrman likes to use as kind of his you know, proof that we get contradiction. He says, in Mark, Jesus is despairing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me as mm-hmm. he hangs on the cross? But in Luke, he's confident. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Uh, and so those are two completely different Jesuses, he says, and you can't put that together. Well, what he doesn't tell you is if you will lay the story of Luke next to the story of Mark, as often does done in a tool called a synopsis, Mark mentions Jesus crying out a second time. In the place of that second cry out is exactly the place where Luke has into your hands I commit my spirit. And so what you see in the movement of putting the two accounts next to one another is that Jesus was both despairing, and by the way, Luke has him despairing in Gethsemane before he ever gets to the cross. Mm. He's despairing on the one hand, and yet on the other, ultimately he trusts God for what God is taking him through on the cross. Mm. That's the way, I think, to put those things together, and they show you're not necessarily dealing with a contradiction here. You're di- simply different, dealing with a different time frame in terms of when we're looking at what's happening on the cross. So that's three examples of the type of thing that you're talking about. And it shows that we have to read the Bible with some, for lack of a better description, sophistication, some subtlety for appreciating literarily what it's doing. 
And I think the the one thing that also reminds me of is just how you you take that and then show how diversity. Um, I think you use this scenario of somebody tells a story. He's sitting around a table, and we're all telling the story together. So a person puts out a story. Other people have things to add to it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's contradictory. It just means that it's actually a fuller story. And I think that you know you use that to. Show Show that actually diversity, where you have these various add-ons, just like the example that you've used now, that's a little bit of a, a, a different perspective, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's contradictory. And I, I really appreciated that clarification. Yeah, I think what people do is they tend to read the Bible what I call flat, which means that every address mm. in the same event has to look at it in exactly the same angle and exactly the same way. Well. Most people don't experience events in a flat way. And mm. the example that I use actually is dealing with another issue, the issue of memory. You know, is it possible mm. to re- recall what's, what happened years ago and tell it well, if you will? And the example that I have are people gathered together around uh, after someone has died. You've got family and friends, and they're telling their experience of this person and the impact of this person on their life. And so one person will tell a story and they'll say, I remember the time when, and we'll go through their deal. And then other people who were there or impacted by the, either the same event or the same kind of event will chime in, and it won't always be the same way. Another example I love to use in this regard is if you ask my wife and me about our courtship, you will get some overlap and you also get some very different uh, events being put forward. But even more interestingly, when we talk about the same event, we won't always talk about it exactly the same way. Right. Um, and it isn't a case of my being right and her being wrong. It's simply a case of the event, the way I experienced it and the way she experienced it were experienced differently. Same event, same things happening, but different reactions. Um, And so this is not unusual if we step back and think about it, but I think sometimes we romanticize the Bible, and we make the Bible Mm -hmm. uh, do things, or we think of the Bible doing things that are different from the way we experience other events, when in fact, oftentimes, it's uh, very parallel to the way we experience the events that were were a part of our own lives. That's right, and uh, I noticed that we're naturally going basically chapter by chapter through your book here. And we're talking about chapter four here where you have the contradictions. And I'll just paraphrase this a bit, Daryl, if that's okay. okay. But you, you point out that um, diversity doesn't mean disagreement. But what we're looking at, particularly, say, well, with the Synoptic Gospels, but with the, the rest of the um, books in the Bible, is we have authentic, normal men writing in normal ways of their time, operating with the normal rules and customs of their time rather than some amazing work that dropped out of the sky. I mean, like I accept the Bible as the inspired word of God, but I do understand that it just didn't fantastically appear out of the sky. You know, he chose to use these normal men to write it. So you are going to have these differences of point of view as you put it, and, and the great example, as both you and Andy have mentioned, is the group of people talking around, talking about the same subject. So I think if we can understand that, it helps us to push back some of these things that we might call contradictions and have a bit of an understanding um, rather than, as you said, the flat reading of the Bible. Um, Another way to say this is that events have depth. 
that mm-hmm. really significant events have depth. They, yeah. they impact people at multiple levels simultaneously, or they impact different people in different ways, even though it's the same event. Yeah. And I think that what we tend to do is we tend to scrunch that depth down and read the Bible flat, when mm. in fact mm. what we ought to do is open up that flatness and allow the depth of significant events to have their significance and their depth because mm-hmm. that's part of what gives them value is that is that they do have this this dimension to them that allows you to probe and that actually gives room for reflection about what's going on and those reflections are deep and can take many forms and many angles and that's what you see I, I think the synoptics are important here. So are Kings and Chronicles mm. and Samuel because it's those particular portions of Scripture where events are retold yes. that, we, uh, that we run into many of these kinds of differences uh, that people will sometimes, skeptical people will sometimes say, see, that you can't make sense out of the way this works. And uh, I often find that students, even students in seminary, are caught off by the kind of the amount and the variety of things that you go. Let me give you another example of the type of thing that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. When Jesus walks on the water in the synoptics, in Mark, the response has to do with um, they didn't get it because there was hardness of heart. I mean, that's how basically the passage ends. In Matthew, they end up worshiping Jesus because he's walked on the water. Now, you couldn't have two more different endings to the same basic event. They're on opposite ends of the spectrum. But again, if you think about the angle that you're dealing with here, uh, what Mark is dealing with is, why didn't they get it at the time it was happening? Well, they didn't get it at the time it was happening because they were hard of heart. But how did they react to the event once it happened? Once it happened, they realized Jesus was walking on the water. They went, oh, my, you know, this is a, this is a different deal. And they worshipped him. And so, so, again, both responses make sense, even though they're very different. And, and understanding where they play in the time frame is also very significant because of the way in which they work. And that shows the depth. There's different angles, and different angles on things show both the initial, if you will, implausibility of having been caught off guard and not being prepared for what's taking place, and then the inevitable uh, reaction and response and depth of appreciation for having gone through the event, having experienced it, and now knowing what it means. No, thank, thank you for that, Daryl, and thank you for coming up with those contradictions because I did want to discuss one or more, but uh, you've given us a, a, a great array there. Chapter 5 discusses the issue of the manuscripts, and to be honest with you, we could speak for hours about the different variety of manuscripts, but what are some of the basic arguments about the range of differences in the manuscripts and what should our response be? What would a reasoned response be to, um, well, to the question, hey, look, there's so many variations in all of these manuscripts. Which one's right? You know, which one, which one are you reading from? Well, the issue of manuscripts is, is one of these where um, I actually think this is the easiest objection to mm-hmm. deal with in a variety mm-hmm. of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, what we have literally in relationship to the New Testament and to a lesser degree, the Old Testament, are thousands of manuscripts. We've got plenty of evidence. That's actually why we have these large number of differences, because you've got to remember that in the period that we're talking about, there's no digital computer, there's no Xerox machine, there's not even a printing press. You know, everything that gets copied gets copied by hand. 
And oftentimes when it got copied by hand, uh, at least in, in certain periods, it was copied in what was called a scriptorium in which someone read the text and then a lot of people sitting at desks wrote what they heard. And so we've got this situation where we've got lots of manuscripts produced and lots of errors are made. Most of the, most of the errors that we see in the copies are things we would immediately spot, just like you'd spot a typo in an email and still know what the person is saying. Um, but there's about, oh, I would say 1% of the total in which, which leaves a question about what the exact wording of a particular passage actually is. And a good study Bible will help you with this because in the margin, what they will have is uh, they'll have an or, which tells you what the alternate reading of the text is. And so we deal with these manuscript differences in ways that we can sense what our options are. And none of it, this is the important point, none of it impacts any actual Christian doctrine. What gets impacted are how many passages apply to the teaching or the doctrine that we're talking mm. about. Mm. And so we're actually, what I tell students is, we're not dealing with the question of not having enough of the text. We have the text plus. We have 110% of the text. And the goal of textual criticism is to mm. chop away at that 10% to get us at the right 100%. That's right. I think that's uh, a good thing to to know because that's something that I actually had written down here in my notes. Uh, the fact that we have more than enough, it's a, a matter of whittling down to what we think is reasonably what the autographs might have said. But um, I agree with you. This is probably one of the easiest questions to overcome if you have a little bit of knowledge on where the manuscripts come from, how many we have, compare them to what's available, say, in the secular world. How That's a great, that's a great point I was going to mm. just get ready yeah. to make. Is yeah, sure. Compare the number of manuscripts that we have for the New Testament in particular to the types of manuscript evidence we have for much of the rest of classical history. And we build whole departments of classics around around what we have. Uh, it's night and day different. Um, I mean, you're talking about for some of your best sources uh, in the ancient world, and these numbers are high and unusual, you know, 200 or something like that. For most of the stuff that we work with in the classics, we might have a dozen, a half dozen, or even less manuscripts mm -hmm. for the for the copy of that material for the new testament we have literally thousands we mm -hmm. have over 5800 greek manuscripts we have over 8000 latin manuscripts even if you restrict it down and push it back and say well we only have so many manuscripts that are early okay we're still in much better shape than we are in the classics we have full copies of the new testament within 3 centuries of the time in which it is written um for some of our classical examples, the gap between the event and the manuscript is is hundreds and hundreds of years, not just a few centuries. We have uh, manuscripts that, that uh, for several of our books that come uh, within a century or a century and a half of when they are written, mm -hmm. uh, that is very, very unusual for an ancient text, so uh, a classical text. So not only do we have more manuscripts, but we have manuscripts that are closer to the time when things are written. We have much more corroboration for what's in the manuscripts. And so, like I said, this is really, this one's a, in many ways a slam dunk. Most, mm. most people working with the Bible do not have a question about what the wording of the text is, except in very specific particular situations. And we know what our options are when we get to those places. That's right. And as you pointed out earlier, they don't impact on theology as such because... 
they don't take away or add anything that we don't already know or believe. As yeah, if we don't have it in this passage, we have it somewhere else. Correct. And, and without yeah. dispute. And so that's the that's the other point to be making here. Yeah. Our lists will our lists of, of proof texts, if you will, will mm-hmm. differ. Okay. Mm-hmm. But actually what we're trying to prove will not. Yes. Okay, so we can we can put that one to bed. I think that um, as we've agreed is one of the easy ones, but it's also one of the ones that interests me the most personally. So uh, there's a there's a little trap here though that I need to warn people about, and mm-hmm. that is that that some people think that when you've solved this one, mm-hmm. that you've taken care of the credibility of the Bible. Right, and that's not the case. All that you have established with this one is we know what the Bible was trying to say. Yes. Uh, you still have the additional question of, all right, now that the Bible says this, what about that? Mm. And that's a, the, dealing with its internal contents, you know, adds a whole other layer of questions, like the contradictions, the so-called contradictions that we just discussed. Yes. You know, that's not a question of what's be, what the manuscripts are doing. That's a question of how you deal with the internal content of the Bible. Right. So yeah. we always have both levels. But sometimes I'm afraid apologists will make it sound like, if I can get you to believe that's what the writer said, that's the end of the discussion. Nope, you've just begun. Right, okay. It's good to make that point, I understand. Um, the next topic, Daryl, in the book, which is very, very important, because this is one that you will hear argued a lot. If you go on the internet, you can see this. It's about the Christianity that we've come to know today was just one of many competing Christianities at the time. And, you know, just speaking in generalities, you know, it come out of the fourth century. Uh, this is the, this is the version that won the battle. And there were many back in that day before the fourth century. So this is the one that won. But hey, let's go back and find out what those other ones are because they might be a better or different type of Christianity than we are living or know about today. Can you flesh that out a bit for us, Daryl? Yeah, there are really two versions of how this story works. One mm-hmm. is the the traditional uh, version, which is that in the beginning you had Jesus and the apostles. We're always thinking about this from the New Testament angle, obviously, because we're talking about Christianity. You had Jesus and the apostles, and they and Jesus passed on his teaching the apostles. He inherited uh, much of what he believed coming out of the Hebrew scriptures, you know, coming out of Judaism. And they went about and taught. And then there were these variations that grew up out of it, like a root of a tree growing up. And then you got this branch going off over here and that branch going off over there, that kind of thing. That's the way the traditional story has gone. Well, the way this has been handled more recently by more skeptical people is in the beginning, Jesus produced a variety of impacts. And there were a variety of ways to think about them. And they did battle with one another through the second and third centuries And then finally we got to the 4th century and Constantine and the Holy Roman Empire and the people around Constantine. It was the, it was what became the Orthodox branch won out and suppressed everything Mm -hmm. else. Mm. Uh, and so in the beginning you didn't have Christianity. You had Christianities. You had a variety of them. And here's the subtle part that comes with this. The argument that's being made is, If we're going to embrace Christianity and have that as what we believe, no one has the right to claim that their Christianity is better than someone else's Christianity. That because it was variety in the beginning and all that variety goes back to things that Jesus generated, that any expression, diverse expression of Christianity is an appropriate expression of the faith. That's actually what what that model is attempting to. Uh, to argue for in one way or another. Yes. And so 
it's an important discussion. Well, of course, the trick here is, is that the sources for these variety of expressions of Christianity that people raise, particularly a thing called Gnostic Christianity, is something we only have evidence for in the second and third centuries. In other words, it doesn't show up until we're down the road a little bit. And that's an important observation because they, because they cannot prove a pedigree that goes back to Jesus and the apostles. In fact, even more than that, you can show that the pedigree of what Gnostic Christianity teaches about the creation is exactly opposite of what came out of the Hebrew scriptures. And Jesus and the apostles came out of Judaism and accepted the idea that God was the creator, that that creation was good, and then there was a fall, etc., uh, what Gnosticism believes is, in the beginning, God himself didn't create, but underling gods created, and the creation that they had was flawed. They botched the job, and that's mm. why we have evil in the world. Mm. They also believe in what's called a spiritual uh, material dualism. That which is spiritual is good. Anything that's physical and material is bad. Yes. Uh, the Hebrew Scriptures does not hold to that idea. Uh, everything was good from the beginning, including and most especially the physical world that God called us to inhabit. So <clears throat> for these reasons, the model can't work, but it often is put forward as something is working, and it is a very popular model in a lot of early Christianity classes. Uh, thank you for outlining both of those aspects of it. Andy, did you have a question? Um <laughs> I'm going to end up in chapter two, I think. So I just don't know if that's going to work too well. <laughs> that's all right. We can go back, flip through a oh, book, thanks. you go forward, you go backwards. That's the way it works. Yeah, sorry Depends about that. Question you're Only being I asked. would do that, honestly. Only I would do that. It's just, let's just go in reverse for a bit. <laughs> okay. All right. I've just shifted the car. You're in good shape. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> I heard that gear going. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> Actually, you know what, I, I was just thinking on a very personal note, and I think not only people within in a worldly sense, you know, people looking into Christianity and trying to judge it just from their own perspective. This is outside of the academic world or even outside of the arguments that you're going to find at college. This is just your ordinary person on the street perhaps having a conversation with a Christian and saying, well, the thing I do not understand is why does God allow suffering? Mm -hmm. Look at the world. Look at what's going on in the world. We're just looking with our, our naked eye, if I can put it that way, and, and we just see an absolute mess. So how can God even exist in this mess and then say that he's loving? And on top of that, I mean, doesn't it show that he doesn't even care about us? So I just thought that it's such a, a pivotal question in terms of just sharing our faith. And I actually think that even perhaps a lot of Christians themselves that do not have good grounding in understanding where they are with the Lord may struggle with this question or even to understand it themselves. Yeah, this I think is actually the, the hardest and most difficult of the questions. And it's why we let off with this question. Right. Because um, because we think without without uh, facing up to this one, really the rest of it is rather academic. Um, and I, I think that in an odd way, there are kind of two ways to approach this. One is to say that the very freedom that we want to have, that we, we, that we insist we have from God, that the skeptic insists he has from God or she has from God, uh, that very freedom leads to choices and consequences that we oftentimes uh, uh, don't want to face up to once we've made the choice, uh, right. particularly a bad one. Um, 
And so that's one element of it. The second element of it is, is that we are created as finite and accountable beings. So we've got to be reminded of our finiteness and accountability. So that's a, that's a second element in the equation. Now, what about the complaint about, you know, God isn't good, that kind of thing? Well, you, right. now this is where irony comes in. So you got to ride with me here for a while. Mm-hmm. You can't even ask that question unless you have a standard of good and evil. And you've got to ask where the standard of good and evil comes from, where your sense that things are a whack or that things are good uh, comes from. If we're all here by accident and all just kinds of ha- kind of happens and that's just mm-hmm. the way it is, then there is no good or evil to talk about. There are just the circumstances that unfold in life, and some of them are good and some of them are bad. Now, you will have some people who will be content to land there, okay? But you'll have a lot of people who will go, eh, I don't think I buy that alternative. But the moment you go there, you have injected into the conversation standards that come from somewhere that, that have to be um, put into play. And so I say the irony of the issue of suffering is, is that you can't even raise the question without thinking about the fact that there must be a God in place, there must be a good and an evil in place in order to assess what's taking place. Now, even that answer is kind of cold and dry, if I can say it that way, but, mm-hmm. but the fact is, is that it's part of the answer because... The alternative is we're just here and playing out a, a drama that's absolutely meaningless for all of us, right, right. In, in which case uh, everybody's fighting for their own turf uh, in life, and uh, that's just an extremely uncomfortable place to be. So if I were to have the choice between the world that I have with suffering in it that is supposed to remind me of my accountability as a creature to the Creator God and, or the choice of just having this randomness that doesn't mean anything – I'll let people make the choice between those two. Right. And much of what we experience, we do manage to do to ourselves. And so, um, you know, we're responsible for the freedom of choice that we exercise as beings made in the image of God. And God lets the consequences of those choices oftentimes play out, and they play out oftentimes in very painful ways. Yeah. It's a sobering thought in a lot of ways. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. And if anything, really, it should show us God. It should lead us to turn to him. Because like I say, because the alternative is just basically it, none of it means anything, in which case we're done talking. Um, you know, we just we just roll with the punches. Can I um, flip back through the book now? We're going to flip back and forth through the book. <laughs> Please change gears. <laughs> yeah, change the gears. Can I flip us back to Chapter 6? And I just want to tell our audience this point and then ask Daryl a question. But going back to the discussion about early Christianity and competing Christianities, which is another area that I enjoy and Andy does as well. I can I can speak on her behalf because she uh, enjoys reading a lot of Eusebius and that and um, shares a lot of her uh, reading with me. But on page 150, um, there's a uh, timeline of the early church, which I think people will find useful if they need uh, reference to some of the stuff that gets discussed in chapter six. But Daryl, you talk about, um, we're going to go back to this topic of diversity again, but it's from a different angle. In page 155, um, it says that legitimate diversity does not equal contradiction when it comes to this idea of competing Christianities. Um, What does that really mean? Well, what it means is is that uh, there was some variety of what we would call a practice in the early church uh, that, that represents diversity on the one hand, but not 
contradiction on the other. So, for example, within the Jewish community, the Jewish believing community in Jerusalem, you had people who went to temple, who followed the law, who in some cases kept uh, kept kosher and that kind of thing. Uh, then on the other hand, you had Hellenistic uh, Christians who didn't keep Jewish practices because they weren't oriented that way at all and didn't keep kosher, go to temple, those kinds of things. So that's just an example of the kind of diversity that you see. Within the book of Acts, you see this. You see the early churches that are sensitive to the law. You see the Hellenistic communities that are not so sensitive to the law, even to the point where uh, Paul, when he comes to Jerusalem, meets up with James, and James says, hey, will you perform this vow to show that you respect Jewish practice uh, now that you're in Jerusalem? And that's exactly what Paul does. Yes, and I think it's good to understand that there was, as as you put it um, in the book, it's legitimate diversity, and it and it doesn't mean it's a contradiction. I, I think we really need to um, have a good sit down and think about these things. But um, if it's okay, Andy, do you have anything else to flip back to? <laughs> well, we can just we could probably move forward if you're happy with that. I don't mind, um, as long as you're happy to go along on the ride. It's fine with me. Well, well, I, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, your your uh, concluding chapter, and I don't know where you were going to go there, G. So uh, forgive me if I'm jumping no. way ahead here. But mm-hmm. um, it it is for me the clincher of everything that we discuss because um, right. you discuss there uh, how did we know Jesus rose from the dead, and um, if we look at 1 Corinthians fifteen fourteen, it says, if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching and your faith is useless. And so if this cannot be proven, then what are we doing? We, we're actually just wasting our time. And so this for me was just actually one of the most exciting uh, chapters to go through. So, so perhaps we can uh, chat about that a bit. Well, I think that the key thing here is to recognize, uh, and I like to flip the table sometimes on a skeptic and say, uh, let's think through the scenario that many people have, and that is that the church in one way or another made this up or was mistaken about what it is that took place. And then let's look at the, look at the account that we have of the resurrection in its first century context. Okay, I've got a belief that people are having trouble with, the idea that a person can be physically raised from the dead. That was not a popular belief at the time. That's why the church had to preach uh, and convince people about it. That's why a miracle was attached to it. Okay, so you've got that. And then you've got this other reality that many people are not aware of, and that is that in the ancient world, women did not count as witnesses for events. And the only situation uh, in which women could testify in a, in a Jewish context, uh, was situations of sexual abuse. Otherwise, their their account, their witnessing, didn't count. And so, so you're sitting there in your PR room, in your public relations room. You've got a dead Messiah. You're going to try and keep hope alive. You've got to resurrect the hope, and you've got a dead Messiah. And in your public relations meeting, someone comes forward with this idea. They say, I know how we're going to convince everybody. We're going to take this difficult idea, and the first people that we're going to send out as our key witnesses are people who culturally don't count as witnesses. That'll convince everybody. And hmm. so the, the point here is, is that you wouldn't make up the story the way the story is presented in the Scripture. 
the scripture is completely countercultural in how it goes about this. It talks about an empty tomb. The first witnesses are women. Uh, the, the empty tomb witnesses to the fact that there's a resurrection. And the reason the story has these cultural oddities in it is because that's the way the story happened. You'd never make it up that way if you were trying to simply convince someone that it took place and then you had the right to make the story up in whatever direction you wanted to make it. So we spend a lot of time in the chapter walking through that scenario and getting people to think about what that means. Because the empty tomb is really God's vote in this entire conversation. Um, the way the Gospels end is, is that you've got two options on the table. Either Jesus is blaspheming by claiming that he's everything that he claims to be, or he is truly exalted by God and is, a, and is the most unusual figure who's ever walked the earth. Those are your two options. The Jewish leadership opts for blasphemy, and Jesus is proclaiming exaltation and vindication. And God's vote in the entire exercise is that empty tomb. When that tomb goes empty, God is showing where Jesus is. In fact, when Jesus answers the priest at his examination, he says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the Father and coming on the clouds. The point that he's making is, if you want to contact me, I can be reached at www.righthandofgod.com, and I'm sitting right there with the Father. Um, and who gets to sit with God in heaven? Think about that one from a Jewish point of view. It actually gets to park next to his side and help to execute his salvation uh, that is being presented. All this is designed to show that God's vote in the resurrection is a vote for the vindication of Jesus, which is an affirmation of the claims that he's making and of the work that he's doing. So uh, that's the key to the chapter. We just don't think uh, there's any good reason to think that it's made up. In fact, we think it's so countercultural that it shows that it's not made up, that the reason the story is told the way that it is is because that was the story. That was the account of what took place. Right. That chapter is one of the better ones as well because the story of the resurrection and how you've is quite often attacked. You know, uh, he didn't die. He was snuck away alive or <clears throat> the body was stolen or whatever. And it also goes into those aspects of it as well. But what we've done really here in this discussion is we've um, done a quick drive through this book chapter for chapter just about. But, yeah, we um, even backed up at one point. <laughs> I know. We did too. That was actually the crowning moment for me. I'm just so glad you were willing to do it. Thanks so much. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if your car doesn't have reverse, you're not you're going to be in trouble sometimes. <laughs> You are in a lot of trouble if there's no reverse. But, um, <laughs> but, but you know, um, I just want to tell people just in general that this is a very readable book. I would get it if you've got young people that are at university or, um, you know, just coming out of high school or whatever, or even if you don't have a thorough understanding of what some of the issues are, because on the back here it says, we know church kids today have real questions and often can't defend their faith. Others are honestly seeking the truth. And this book really does set out to answer a lot of those questions that we are all going to be faced with in our day-to-day -day walk, whether we are at university or at high school or not. So it is it is for adults too, and it's very readable. It's, can I say, a, a short readable book, and that's not a criticism, because if you're a bit of a reader, you could read this in, in a weekend, no no problems. And just so we've we've got it here in our recording, it's by... Kostenberger, Bock, and Chatra, and the title is Truth Matters, Confident Faith in a Confusing World. And um, Andy and I both got ours from different sources, but if I can ask you, Daryl, where's the best place for people to get a hold of this book? 
Oh, wow. That's, uh, you know, because you're talking globally here, it Mm -hmm. becomes complicated. Normally what I would tell people is uh, if you go to a Christian bookstore or if you go to a place like Mm Amazon.com, it's very easy to get get a hold of. Now, you're out there in Australia Mm -hmm. and South Africa, and uh, I suspect Amazon reaches those places pretty easily. That's probably the easiest way to get it in some ways is to to just order it that way. Um, But... If you if you go to the publishers that are represented, if this is Broadman Holman and Lifeway, I'm not sure if they carry the same name in the other in the countries that you all are, are in. Uh, but usually, if you'll find a good Christian publisher who has a good Christian uh, a there book it distributing is. capability, we were waiting for the top of the there it hour is. here. We're gonna get we're gonna get music in the background now. Anyway, um, uh, if you if you just find a good Christian book distributor, you'll be able, they'll be able to get access to the book. Okay. And for um, Kiwi and Aussie listeners, I got mine from Fishpond. Um, anyway, yeah. So, Andy, yeah. did you want to say where yours come from? Oh, well, Kindle. <laughs> so Amazon. Okay. All right. You got but at least Kindle. there's okay. a Kindle version, which is great to know. That's right. There is an electronic yeah. version of it. And so that's the, you know, just download it direct. That's a really simple way. In fact, that's such a simple way that everything else doesn't matter. I'm still a bit old-fashioned. I like to have the uh, physical book in my hands, and this one is a good one because I've got the hard cover, and it's not that big, and it's easier to carry around, and you can read this one in bed, so it's very readable. Uh, Daryl, before we let you go, can you tell us what's coming up next? I know that there's a bigger, better, faster, more version of the book coming soon. Yeah, there's a there's a fuller version of the book that's going to go into some of the argumentation in more detail and certainly have a lot more footnotes so that it makes it easier for the person who wants to follow up to follow up things. Mm-hmm. This book is coming out in, in September of 2014. Uh, it's entitled Truth in a Culture of Doubt, and it's probably twice the size uh, of this book. Mm-hmm. And uh, really, interestingly enough, that was the book we wrote first. Oh, uh, okay. We wrote the big book first and got all the, I call the blood and guts out. And then Mm -hmm. the publisher came back to us and said, we like this book, but we'd also like to write one directly to young people that's, uh, that's has the core arguments uh, more simply packaged. And so that's the second book. And the second book came out first and the first book came out second, because that's a good biblical principle. Mm -hmm. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. (laughs) And so, uh, so we did it that way. Excellent. Um, All right. Um, Any more questions from you, Andy? No, just to say, I mean, I really do encourage people to read this book. I absolutely loved reading it. I wish you could be my professor. That's I said that to exactly. God <laughs> when I first met him. I was like, if I well, was to ever study have, New Testament, Skype, Skype, I would love you to do it. A little bit of class. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, okay. So. Yeah, I, I really highly encourage people to go and get it. I want to go and actually get physical copies because uh, Kindle's mm. great, but you can't mm. share it around too much. Yeah. So I want to go and get some physical copies. They are going to be gifts. I, I absolutely love this book. So It is, it is that um, good. It yeah. Is. yeah, our hope is actually that parents would think about or, or friends would think about giving it to kids who are graduating yeah. and yeah. going on to university as a, as a gift, as a graduation gift, that kind of thing. Yes. We think that that's a, a good use of it, uh, and we hope that churches will also think about using it as part of their youth curriculum in the, in the last couple of years while the child is still in church and attending as, a, as what would in the United States be a junior and senior in high school. 
because we think that getting kids prepared for these conversations and questions ahead of time is much better than them hearing about it afterwards because sometimes that leaves the impression, oh, the church didn't tell me about this. They don't want me to know about it. Yes. Right. Yes, and I think that's good that we uh, bolster our young people before they get out there. Rather, as you said, they find, they get out there and go, whoops, what's that about? But, Daryl, next question uh, before we let you go is where can people find you on the Internet? Oh, um, the best place to find the stuff that I do is on our seminary site, which is www.dts.edu slash the table. I actually host mm-hmm. a weekly podcast Yes. on a variety of topics related to God and culture. It's called The Table, mm-hmm. and it covers an array of topics. I mean, from theology all the way over to uh, practical issues like uh, uh, dealing as Christians with the human sex trafficking, uh, issues related to same-sex marriage. There are all kinds of things that we cover on those on those podcasts. That's the easiest way to do it. And then I blog a site called Bible.org, and for that one it's blogs dot bible.org slash bach and that's b-o-c-k if you spell it like the composer you won't find me (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's right bach yes and also i think a simple search for box blog i think will also find you as well Um, that's right yeah yeah Yeah, i pop up now and again on the net so uh (laughs) you know we, we we inhabit those uh those shadowy spaces that are a part of the internet that's right. Well, yeah, can I just say uh, thank you very much for um, being willing to come on and be part of our show. And I wonder if we could have you back um, another time to discuss perhaps um, other topics, but even um, some of your earlier books, if that would be okay. Oh, absolutely. No problem. It's just, you know, a matter of arranging it all, which, mm-hmm. uh, and that's, so just stay in touch. That would be All right, great. thank you. Andy? Oh, yeah, thanks so much for joining us. I hope you enjoyed the South African-Australian experience <laughs> <laughs> in podcasting. I, I, I do. It, it, it's always been an interesting uh, – I, I have friends in Melbourne who, who moved to Australia from South Africa, and the relationship between Australia and South Africa has always been fascinating to me. My, it is. My <laughs> walk into the British Commonwealth, other than being a rebellious American, came from my time in Aberdeen in Scotland. Uh-huh. So I'm feeling more and more connected to the Queen all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, then you know that oh, um, uh, Aussies and uh, South Africans are great rivals on the sporting field, especially in uh, uh, rugby and cricket. So um, That's right. Well, I'm looking forward to coming out to Australia and seeing what the State of the Union is. So, uh, so that, well, that's uh, it. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, you know, between that and, and Australian footy, mm. I get my alternative uh, look at sports when we make our trips out to Australia. Um, you'd be one of the few Americans I've ever spoken to that knows that um, Aussie rules exist, Daryl. Yeah, well, uh, it's actually showing up here on television a little bit on one of know. the sports channels. So, okay. uh, so you know, Aussie rules is now, you know, in, in your neighborhood. What can I say? Exactly. Wow. One, of the, one of the better games to watch. Alrighty. Okay. Well, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much, Daryl. Appreciate that, and have safe, yeah. safe travels. Well, thank you. Sure. Thank you all, and I uh, wish you all the Lord's best. Thank you. God bless. All right. And go God well. bless. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed our show. You can find us on the web at www.lightflintradio.com. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us at mail at lightflintradio.com. That's M-A-I-L 
at lightfleetradio.com.